Welcome to Season 4, Episode 6 of the Next Step Podcast. So good to have you with us tonight as we do another Facebook Live reading. I'm reading from the book Delight, Discipleship as the Adventure of Loving and Being Loved. Uh, really glad that you're able to, to join me again tonight. So good to have you here. Uh, last night we were talk, We did the first half of Chapter 6. We were talking about uh, salvation in two acts. That way of telling the story as a, as a drama from wrath to delight. That was the big movement in two acts, from wrath to delight. That's where we talked about the sacrifice of atonement, where the animal uh, takes the sin away from the sinner and blood is shed in order to, to remove sin. And tonight we get to look at uh, another way the Bible has of telling the story, salvation as a drama in three acts. So we're going to begin that in just a minute. Oh, wonderful fall day here in Michigan. Uh, it's supposed to be rainy the next few days, but the sunset tonight was just gorgeous. Uh, a little cool, a little nip in the air. My uh, the, the big thing I did this afternoon was spend two and a half, three hours uh, on online on the phone with Comcast and I uh, still don't have my Xfinity internet working yet. So I'm glad I'm able to, to broadcast tonight and looking forward to actually having good internet at my house again. So you guys know how that goes. One of those signs of a broken and fallen creation, right? Uh, we're just not there yet. Uh, besides that, I got to, to put the final polishing touches on the devotions for our hymn journal that's coming out for Advent. It's called Light in the Darkness. I'll share some more with you about that in some coming in the coming days. But uh, really excited to have that almost done. So really, really looking forward to seeing what all the Visual Faith illustrators of their artwork. I've only seen a couple of pieces. Really excited about what I'm seeing, and and it's going to be a great hymn journal. So I'm looking forward to that coming out early in November as well, in time for Advent. Uh, well, we ha said we're going to be going about 30 or 35 minutes. Kind of the way it broke out last night, it was like go 20 minutes or 38 minutes. There is no really good place to stop. So we're shooting for that 30 to 35 minutes. We'll just see how far we get. We'll take a little bit break, a little bit of a break in the middle as well, perhaps. So uh, let me jump in with salvation in three acts. I'm starting on page 69 of the Delight book. Hey, uh, if you haven't bought this Delight book yet, get yourself a copy. Get a friend a copy. I'm glad to read it online. You help support Next Step Press and these kinds of resources if you buy a copy for yourself and somebody else. I put a link in the description. You know, we get like two cents if you buy a book. I don't know what the exact thing is. It's not much, but, but Next Step Press does get something from ad revenue from that link if you use that particular link. Uh, and another thing you might want to do is to simply follow the Justin Rosso Amazon author page. I put that link in the description tonight as well. Uh, that's just a good way to make sure you get an email when a new book comes out by me or a new book through Next Step Press. And uh, I, I think it also kind of builds some traction and momentum too. If you have an author that's got a lot of follows, I think Amazon thinks that must be a good author or something. I'm not, I'm not sure, but I actually think that's helpful. So try checking those things out as well. Okay, without further ado, I'm really excited to talk about salvation in three acts. A second thoroughly biblical, central, and comprehensive way of telling the story of Scripture is as a drama of salvation in three acts. Instead of the curtain opening on the present state of the fallen creation, this way of telling the story goes all the way back to the beginning. In Act 1, 
God delights in creation, and Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden delight in God right back. In fact, some scholars suggest the word Eden comes from another Hebrew vocabulary word for delight, luxurious delight. God made these people. God loves these people. These people belong to God. Then something drastic happens. These people who delight and belong to God come under the influence, lordship, and ownership of a foreign power. Like the coin or the sheep or the prodigal son, God's people become lost. They wander from the place they belong. Sin has made them captive to a foreign enemy. In Act 2 of the drama of salvation in three acts, God's people are not the enemy, unlike Act 1 in the drama of salvation in two acts where sinful humans are God's enemies. God's people are not God's enemies. Rather, they are under the authority and ownership of the enemy. God's people still delight God, but they no longer belong to God. Now humanity belongs to sin, death, and the devil. The divine desire and longing for God's own treasured possession is so great, God vows to find a way to buy them back. The cross is, again, the key turning point in the story. The suffering and death of Jesus is the ransom that buys God's people back, that brings them home, that reestablishes their relationship with the God who made them and to whom they belong. That's Act 3. God's treasured possession is restored to its rightful place, and the delight that had turned to longing in Act 2 had given away to even more delight in Act 3. God's people are again God's people, They belong to God forever, and nothing can snatch them out of God's powerful and loving hand. If the first way of telling the story aligns with a sacrifice of atonement, this second way embodies the dynamics of a sacrifice of redemption. The Old Testament consists of a wide variety of sacrifices, from fellowship offerings to thank offerings to wave offerings— many of which overlap in meaning, and many of which don't. We aren't going to do an OT deep dive at this point. Still, the shape of the sacrificial system in general, even if the practices fell short of the design, can give us an insight into what's what's going on in God's mind and heart. The sacrifice of redemption again harkens back to the very first Passover, God's people have come under foreign ownership. They are slaves in Egypt, and God is going to win them back. The God of Israel engages the gods of Egypt head on. In the last and fiercest battle of this war for ownership of God's people, the God who claims to be the author of life and death takes on the head of the Egyptian pantheon, who also claims to rule over life and death. The last plague the death of the firstborn will determine which God can actually put their money where their mouth is. At the command of Yahweh, the angel of death visits all the firstborn in Egypt. By divine mandate, the firstborn of Israel should have died that night too. But in an act of divine mercy, the blood of the Passover overlam turns death away. From that point on, Yahweh claims ownership of the firstborn in Israel, even of the cattle. 
By rights, they should have died. God has the authority to give life and to take it. And those God spares are now property of the Most High. To commemorate that victory over Egypt and the sparing of the firstborn, God gives a command for future generations. Any firstborn must be bought back, redeemed, bought at a price. The law sets the price of redemption at the life of a lamb, just like at that first Passover. Or if the family can't afford it, they could bring two small pigeons. But the firstborn, even of the cattle, belongs to Yahweh, and you have to buy back your firstborn into your family. That's what Mary and Joseph were doing in the temple when they met Simeon and Anna. Do you remember the scene? Mary and Joseph brought two pigeons along with the infant Jesus to buy their firstborn back into their family. They had to redeem their son, a son who belonged to their family but still had to be bought back at a price. Yes, before Jesus redeemed anyone, he himself was redeemed by Mary and Joseph. A sacrifice of redemption is the price you pay to buy back something that used to be yours so it is yours again and yours permanently. Your firstborn son was never an enemy. He didn't belong to you for a time. Once you had paid the redemption price, he was yours again the way he was supposed to be all along. The movement is from delight to longing to even more delight. John the Baptist said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the sacrifice of atonement, the drama of salvation in two acts, where you go from being God's enemy to being God's beloved child because of the cross. Jesus said of himself, The Son of Man has come not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the sacrifice of redemption, the drama of salvation in three acts, where you go from being God's treasured possession to being God's treasured possession under the ownership of an enemy to being God's treasured possession back home where you belong because of the cross. The movement goes from one, mine, to two, mine but lost to me, to three, mine, restored with rejoicing. You can see all three stages of that progression in some of the parables you probably know well. Parables like the lost sheep, the lost coin, or even the lost or prodigal son in Luke 15. The sheep, the coin, and the son, all three, begin where they belong, end up missing in a way that causes searching and longing, and three, are restored to their proper place with such joy that parties and banquets are in order. Two of my favorite parables of Jesus emphasize the transition from Act 2, longing, to Act 3, even more delight. These pithy stories come in a couple of brief verses in Matthew chapter 13, right in the middle of a bunch of other longer and more famous parables. In verse 44, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this situation. Some guy finds a treasure buried in a field, and in his joy, that's one of our delight vocabulary words from section one, this is emotional delight that makes you jump up and spin around and shout, woohoo, and start singing your happy song. 
In his joy, he jumps up, spins around, shouts, Woohoo! And sells everything he has so he can afford to buy that field. In the next verse, Jesus tells a similar parable. The kingdom of heaven is like this situation. A professional pearl dealer who has a lifetime's worth of experience and a lifetime's worth of inventory finally finds that once-in-a-lifetime pearl. Sometimes it's called the pearl of great value, sometimes the pearl of great price. Price and value are intimately related. At the bargain basement price of every single pearl in his possession, along with his house and his retirement plan and his brand new camel caravan and his cottage by the sea, that merchant makes the purchase of a lifetime and walks away with a pearl that made all those years of searching worthwhile. The value validated the price. In fact, the value exceeded the expense so that this unbelievably high price, everything you own, was greeted with joy and paid in full with delight. Those two verses in Matthew chapter 13 helped me see that I'd been reading Hebrews chapter 12 wrong all my life. Hebrews 12 speaks of Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who first put pen to paper to tell our story, the one who himself is responsible for how this drama will unfold. Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy, the Greek word is kara, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I guess I always imagine that the joy, there's that emotional delight word again, that the joy set before Jesus was something like receiving the applause of heaven, the praise of saints and angels, and having the honor of sitting at the right hand of God. And then it occurred to me, before the incarnation, before the cross, Jesus already had the applause of heaven, the praise of saints and angels. Jesus was already seated at the right hand of God and had to leave that place of honor in order to endure the cross and then take back his rightful place. So what was it? What was the joy set before Jesus? What could possibly make Jesus jump up and spin around and shout, Woohoo! and endure the cross? What could possibly make Jesus scorn the shame of public humiliation and torture as if it were a bargain basement price? What was the joy set before Jesus? I think it was you. The thing that Jesus now has that he didn't have before the cross and open tomb is you. The treasure buried in a field that was worth giving away everything is you. The single motivating factor for Christmas and Good Friday and Easter is you. 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 Your value validated the price. In fact, your value exceeded the expense so that this unbelievably high price, everything Jesus owned, even his own life, 
was greeted with joy and paid in full with delight. Jesus looked at the possibility of having you as his own forever. And then he looked at the cross. And in his joy, he said, Yes, worth it. What a bargain. For your sake, Jesus said, yes, they can deny me and betray me. They can spit on me and mock me. They can put a crown of thorns on my head and drive nails through my hands and hang me up to die. I would gladly pay that bargain basement price if it means an eternity with Carla, an eternity with James, an eternity with Connor, with Ida, with Carrie, with you. If you ever have cause to doubt your own value, if you ever wonder what your small existence is worth, if you ever find yourself in a dark and lonely place where your inner voice tells you again and again and sometimes most days in any given week that you are ugly or stupid or worthless, check your price tag. Because your price tag reads, the very life of the Son of God. And Jesus read that price tag and considered eternity with you and eternity without you. And then, with tears of joy, sold everything he had so that he could afford to buy you. You made all those long years of searching worth it. You were the joy set before Jesus that led him to endure the cross and even scorn its shame. You, you were worth it. And maybe we can take a break, a pause here for station identification. <laughs> this is the Tigers Baseball Network. Uh, yeah, you know, I've preached on that before, and I usually cry at that place. And uh, I cried when I was writing it, and I'll probably cry next time I read it. So you'll have to put up with me. That's the story of salvation in three acts, from mine uh, to with delight to mine but no longer mine, longing, I, I want that back to mine restored to me again with rejoicing. But just like in the first way of telling the story of salvation, that drama in two acts, if all you have is that drama in three acts, you can miss some important stuff. So let's kind of push on through a little bit more tonight before we wrap up. What we miss, part two. As important and comforting as that way of speaking the gospel is, the drama of salvation, if this drama of salvation in three acts is the only way we have tell, of telling the story, we can inadvertently draw some pretty natural conclusions that just don't fit with the rest of the biblical witness. If I come to you and say, I'm so sorry, 
I sinned and I know I sinned. I stepped on your toes and I am ashamed. I need you to forgive me, please. And the only thing you know how to say is God really values you. I mean, I mean that's nice. But my problem isn't that I don't feel valuable. My problem is that I'm a stinking sinner. And I know it. And I've experienced it in my own life. I have a sin problem. I have this burden of guilt I am carrying. And if all you can tell me is God loves you and God delights in you, I'm going to know in my heart that it's just not true according to my own sinful and fallen nature. God's answer to sin is forgiveness. God's answer for a guilty conscience is the promise you are forgiven for the sake of Jesus. What the person carrying a burden of guilt needs to hear is that Jesus died on the cross and took the burden of their sin away. That what they did was awful, but that it will not be held against them. And our relationship is not damaged beyond repair. That's what I need to hear. That's what you need to hear. So if the only truth you have is delight, you might not be able to deal with real sin. Or you might even downplay your own sinfulness. After all, you are a delight to God. How bad could you really be? As soon as delight stops being what Jesus tells you he feels about you and becomes what you tell Jesus he should feel about you, you've begun to think pretty highly of yourself. I think the danger of that self-importance is one reason why, growing up, I always heard such a clear presentation that on your own, you can never please God. On your own, you have no value. On your own, even on your best day, you are blind, dead, and an enemy of God. As soon as I start focusing on how delightful I am, I can lose sight of my own sinfulness. Even worse, I can lose my dependence on Jesus. God already loves me. What do I need Jesus for? Hmm. If the reality of God's delight in you, this unique, handmade, treasured possession and beloved child, if the reality of God's delight in you overshadows your desperate need for Jesus, you've let go of one of the most central teachings of Scripture. If all I have is delight, I can't deal with sin or even take sin seriously, and I'm in danger of not needing Jesus since I am so delightful on my own. So on the one hand, if all you have is poor, miserable sinner, you can miss that this creation, even though fallen, is still a good gift intended by God to delight. But on the other hand, if all you have is delight, you can miss that this creation, even though it was originally very good, is still fallen. Focusing only on delight can mean ignoring pain and suffering in your life or in the world around you. Focusing only on delight can mean discounting injustice or whitewashing grief. If I have no way of dealing with sin or brokenness, then I better pretend not to see sin or brokenness around me and hope that it goes away quietly. While only having atonement language can cause you to stop looking for your future rescue, only having redemption language can cause you to pretend that your future rescue is already complete, that this is as good as it gets, that the very good creation is already restored, or at least mostly restored. Or maybe if you turn your head and squint, looks like it might be just about restored. 
If the only way you know to how to tell the story is a drama of salvation in three acts, where you go from delight to longing to even more delight, you can end up sticking your head in the sand and ignoring the sin and brokenness and dysfunction and pain and suffering in your life and in the life of the world around you. So you have to have both. You have to hold on to atonement and redemption at the same time. You need to know the depth of your depravity without losing sight of the value Jesus himself places on you. Faithfulness to complex truth means holding firmly to both sides of the truth at the same time, even when they don't seem to be, even when they seem to be pulling in opposite directions. That brings us to the last section of chapter 6, attention with a shelf life. In this brief time between the fall and the resurrection of the flesh, hey, I kind of like that. Uh, it's been all of human history, but it's really in the scope of eternity, a really short window between the fall and the resurrection. It just It's just a few millennia, you know, just in eternity. Never mind. I'll get back to the book. In this brief time between the fall and the resurrection of the flesh, we must hold on to our unworthiness as tightly as we do to our immense value. As long as this broken, sinful world still exists, repentance and delight will both define the life of a disciple. Oh man, can I say that again? As long as this broken, sinful world still exists, repentance and and delight will both define the life of a disciple. This tension is not a defect in our faith. This tension is absolutely essential for holding on to God's promises in the midst of our current reality. Sometimes in our lives this side of eternity, seemingly contradictory things are true at the same time. Even your most righteous acts are like filthy rags. And... You are precious and honored in God's sight. You are so infected with original sin that you are corrupt even before you were born. And you were unique and wonderful even before you were born because you were handmade by God. You can only approach the throne of grace with the empty hands of a beggar. And... You're invited to come to your daddy with the empty hands of a darling child. God loves you only for the sake of Christ. And God loves you for your own sake. You delight God only because of who Jesus is and you delight God because of who you are, because of who God created you to be. The reality of this broken and sinful world combined with the reality of God's love for us in Jesus means that we will have to hold on to this tension as long as this fallen world endures, which won't be always. You won't always live in a broken and fallen world. You won't always be both sinner and saint at the same time. You won't always need repentance or forgiveness or hope or even faith. This essential tension in your faith has a very specific shelf life. The day is coming when you will no longer need hope because hope will come true. 
The day is coming when you will no longer need faith because your faith will be sight. The day is coming when you will no longer need repentance or even forgiveness because sin will be done away with forever. The day is coming when the lost treasured possessions will be brought home at last and forever and God's enemies will never take possession of them again. The day is coming soon when Jesus himself will resolve the tension between our unworthiness and our immense value in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And then, finally, there will be nothing left but delight. God's delight in you treasured possession and your delight in God forever and ever. And the amazing thing is Jesus looks and longs for that day even more than we do. I can't wait. I can't wait. Thanks for joining us tonight. I'll get it together. I'll see you again tomorrow at 8 p.m. I'll see you next time at Next Step Press. Good night, everybody.